today's guest is Gail Heisen. Gail Heisen has had paranormal experiences since she was a teenager. Today, in the research community, Gail is known as a telepath, psychic, and remote viewer, someone who accurately sees distant or future events. She has worked with top researchers in parapsychology, including Dr. Dean Radin and Russell Targ. The chapter on telepathy in Dr. Dean Radin's international bestseller, Supernormal, describes one of the many successful paranormal experiments with Gail as the subject. She has contributed to many experiments and papers on paranormal phenomena. In 2011, she was initiated as a Mongolian Buryat shaman. In 2014, she was awarded an honorary doctorate from Mongolia's National Academy of Sciences. For decades, Gail Heisen has been a subject and contributor to scientists in the paranormal and psi research field. She's also host of the podcast, A Small Medium at Large, where she speaks to those who have fascinating abilities and some of these renowned researchers. She has led an unconventional life and found herself accepted into other cultures by just being herself. Hey, everyone. I'm really excited to let you know about the science and spirituality salons I'm now hosting. During these intimate events, a scientifically verified psychic medium will give all of you readings, and I will give a talk on the science and evidence that changed my mind about an afterlife. So will also be an amazing opportunity to get to meet some of you in person or virtually, and to share more about all the science and data that transformed my worldview and got me through my worst days. These can be hosted in your home, in a nearby cafe with a private room, or they can even be virtual. I've hosted a few already and they were really special, fascinating, emotional, evidential. So if you're interested in getting a small group together over dinner, brunch, drinks, coffee, to learn more about the science and to get evidential medium readings, send me an email at hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put science and spirituality in the title. Welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a sciencey skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? 
Hi, I'm Gail Heisen, and I'm happy to be here today with you, Liz, to talk about whatever interesting questions you have about all the different things I've been involved in over the last, I don't know, maybe 50, 50, 50 53 years or more. I'm so excited to have you. First of all, how did you even first notice that you had these abilities? Well, I guess we should tell the audience what would these abilities be. I've been told I'm very psychic. I seem to have uh, experiences where I've had no trouble doing remote viewing or I've had out-of-body experience. I'm somebody who sometimes dreams things as they're happening or things in the future. I think that all of these things happened to me starting as a child. So they're not something like that I started doing later in life. It's just something that's been in part of my life all my life. So you've never not had these abilities. They've gone back as far as you can remember. When I was 15, I actually took a course called Mind Dynamics uh, with my family and with my dad and mom and my brothers. And that was one where I actually learned about the things that are, some people call them gifts, what whatever the right word would be. But I learned about some of the things that I'm capable of doing without knowing them because I'd never had a structured way to say, well, go inside somebody's body and tell us if they're sick or do these different kind of things, techniques I learned when I took this particular course. Before that, it was only just things that just sort of happened naturally. Did you say you were able to go into someone's body and tell how they were sick? Yes, yes. Can you give an example of a time you did that? Let's see, I did that from when I was 15 years old till I was 17. So I did it for two years. And what they were called when I did it with this organization called Mind Dynamics, I was taught to, the whole premise was that you would learn how to do what they called cases to help people who were sick. And you would then do healing, distant healing on the person to help them with whatever their issue was, whether it was heart disease or, you know, if they were having a stroke or any of this kind of different cancers and you would do different things inside this little workshop in your mind that you built to help the persons. And what they did was they would tell you the name, the age and the city of the person. So someone would say, you know, Mary Smith, she lives in San Francisco, California, and she's 27 years old. So that's all the information they would give you. And then you were taught to see the image of that person's body or person themselves inside this little workshop in your mind. And you would start to learn ways in the beginning. When you first do it, they would say, just what area of the body are you drawn to? Or do you see any colors of blackness or redness or any kind of colors that come in your mind when you're looking at the person's body. So it started off with simple techniques like that, but then the more that you did them, the more accurate and the more information came to you. And so in some instances, I was able to even tell the people what pharmaceutical drugs they were taking for their illnesses. So it got very, very detailed. And the more that I did them, the better I got at it. So I volunteered doing many, many of these cases. And I would do them in hotels and in people's living rooms because they would use that 
as a method to sell their course so that other people would then buy it and come and take it for two weekends and pay. It was $150 back then, but in the 70s, $150 was a lot of money. So they would tell the people in the audience, if you would like to do what Gail just did, you can, or anyone can do this. All you have to do is sign up for the course. And in the end of two weekends, you can go inside and start looking in other people's bodies and doing healing with them yourself. So I thought as a teenager that I was doing this really wonderful thing to help other people, but I wasn't taught at the same time because I don't think these people really knew what they were dealing with, that you need to protect yourself when you're going inside people that are ill or people that are dying. And so I started having negative experiences that some might call possession or where an entity is attached onto your aura, or I'm not exactly what sure what words would be the correct words. And when I had those kind of experiences, I went to the people I was working with and I was doing this all volunteer, so I wasn't getting paid to do this. And nobody was, everybody said, you create your own reality. So I was 17, kind of freaking out. And I took it seriously when I would take a patient or not a patient, a client or a customer case, I would work on them for a whole week. So every day I would spend time where I would put gold light around them or I would immerse them in water or whatever image came to me that would be a healing, distant healing method I would use to try and help them. And I didn't know anything else about this. That's all I knew is that that's what I was doing. I didn't realize that that could affect my own health or my body. And so when that started happening and I didn't receive any help from them, I ended up saying, I will never do that kind of work ever again. So I stopped doing that and I just let whatever natural things happen to me for the next, I don't know, 30 years or I met Dean Radin and Russell Targ when I was about, I think I was 40 maybe, or 39 or 39 or 40, something like that. And it was the first time that I said I would do some kind of organized work with whatever abilities that I have with these gentlemen. How did you meet them both? Well, if the audience doesn't know, Dean Radin is the senior scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And he's an incredible man doing amazing work, writing unbelievable books that are, you know, all backed by science. He's, you know, not a woo-woo guy. And Russell Targ is one of the founders of the uh, Stargate Project, the remote viewing that was done at Stanford Research. And the two of them were given an office to do something called the Phenom Project at a company called Interval Research that was owned by uh, Paul Allen of the Microsoft. And my husband worked there. So my husband was in his office and he received a memo that said, we're looking for people to participate in our Phenom project. And we need people who'd be interested in participating in this with us inside the company. And my husband said, my wife doesn't work here, but she, has been amazing me for the last few years with things that she tells me when she wakes up in the morning after a dream or something. So he told them that I'd had a dream about our house cleaner and that I received a phone call in the dream saying she's not coming to work because her son is sick. He's throwing up. She won't be there today. So I tell him the dream in the morning and an hour later the phone rings and it's 
our woman Adriana and she says, I'm sorry, I can't come because my son is, is not well. He's throwing up. I have to stay home. So he asked them, are you interested in somebody like that? And they said, yes. So even though I didn't work in the company, they were willing to interview me from that little tidbit story. And they asked that I write down all the psychic experience I'd ever had. And I had never thought about writing them down because I just lived them. And so after 10 pages of stories, I realized I had more than enough to bring into the office. And I went in for an hour and a half interview, which went on for actually two and a half hours. And at the end of the interview, both of them told me I should write a book. And they all both said, we would like to work with you. So that was how I got involved in remote viewing and meeting Dean and Russell. And we're still friends to this day. And in fact, at the end of 2022, Russell and I started a little series of remote viewings together just to see what we could come up with and put together a little kind of little 12, you know, 12 uh, remote viewings and what the results and the ratings were. And we just completed that. So it's been over 20, I think I started with them in 1998, I think it's, but it's anyways, it's or 95. It's anyway, it's over 20 years that we've been doing this together. First of all, let's get into the remote viewing. What were some of the remarkable experiments you did with remote viewing? First off, I had never heard of the word remote viewing before, but it's really exactly what we were trained to do when we were doing cases. We were remote viewing inside people's bodies. So we were looking to see at a distance something that exists. So in remote viewing, you're looking to see the target that may be a photograph or it might be a place where someone's standing. There's many different types of remote viewing. And there's remote viewing where people are given coordinates and they do remote viewing from the coordinates. I've never been trained as a remote viewer, so I've never had any remote viewing training. But what we did have was me come into the office and Russell would sit down and tell me, you know, until I did this with him, I had no idea that I had this ability to do precognitive remote viewing, which is remote viewing for something that hasn't been selected yet. So that was our first 20 trials we did together was we would sit down in front of a computer and Russell would say to me, I want you to take a piece of paper and draw. I would lay down on the floor because I liked laying on the floor to be comfortable. And I would lay down on the floor and he'd say, it's one o'clock now. And at three o'clock, we're going to see a photo that was generated from 300 National Geographic photos. And we'd like you to draw now what photo that's going to be. So this was a task I didn't even know that I had the ability to do because I'd never been asked before to describe something that hadn't even been chosen yet. So this is describing a, a photo of a place in the world that's, you know, it can be a waterfall somewhere or a famous building or, you know, these kind of natural things, natural and structures. And in the beginning, I would have very good attention to, to small details in the, in the photographs. But then as we did more and more, I would start to learn the, the method of doing this kind of remote viewing. And you don't actually say the name of the target. You just describe what what the target is, but you would never say, oh, it's the Eiffel Tower. Instead, you would say, oh, I see a tall metal structure 
going upward and this is how the remote viewing is done and then it's it's rated why do you not name or label it what is the thought process behind that i don't know that's their the way they've told you i think it's something maybe has to do with possible distraction or something they call analytical overlay where you they say call that aol where you're then mixing up you know you're seeing pictures and instead of naming them that can take you off track so instead you're really supposed to describe it not name it so i learned that procedure you know by being taught don't do it this way do it like that the most interesting thing that i found out of this 20 session one was that it was judged by a very well-known man named ed mays and ed mays was the judge of the different 20 trials and they were determining i'm not sure what they were looking for in their statistics but i would get incorrect because i would see uh people cars and boats in some of these photos and i would tell about this in the description and i'd say well i see this here and that there and then when the picture would come up there would be no cars no boats and no people and i felt very confused that I'm looking at the picture, seeing something else that's not actually there. So at the end of the 20 series, I found out those things had been in the pictures, but they were erased out because these men know what good targets are and they felt that those should not be in the photos. So I thought that was a phenomenal thing to describe the photo in the future and then also describe things that were in the photo that were taken out. So that to me was a very interesting thing to learn because I didn't even know that I had that particular ability. And that opens the door to so many questions. <laughs> I also have a question. Did the photos of the, there was the group of, was you said, it was a choice of, I forgot how many photos you said, but was it 300? There were 300 that, yeah. And it was a random number. They were random. That's what I was going to ask. So there was no chance you were reading Russell Targ's mind. No, Russell didn't know what the picture would be either. A random number generator would select it. So nobody knew what three o'clock photo would come up. How do you, do you have any idea? Do you think you were predicting the future? Do you think you were, what thoughts do you have? Do you have any idea about how that could work and what that says for the time? This is one of the things I learned in the 20 years of working with these two wonderful men is that time isn't how we see it. And uh, that's my own personal, I'm not saying that's for everybody else, but for my personal thing, time isn't just the clock. There's something else that's beyond time. When you go to this particular place, time doesn't really exist there. So it's sort of like what happened in the future or what happened in the past, or what happened in the present, it's all the same, it doesn't, it, there is no time regarding those things when you're trying to remote view something that hasn't even been selected yet. How can you do that? I'm not sure. I can't answer how it actually happens, except that time isn't like we we think of it. Do you think there was any way you could have been having a psychokinetic PK influence and you picking the image influenced the machine picking that one? I don't. I do think that there's things that can happen where you can influence things maybe, but those seem more like, like what you're saying. I had to prove to myself that I wasn't people reading people's minds back when I was a teenager. 
And the way I figured that one out was because I kept thinking, maybe when I'm sitting here and I'm telling them the sickness of a person, maybe it's because they're thinking in their mind, oh, my aunt has uh, leukemia and they're thinking it. So I'm reading their mind because I know I've done that where I have read people's minds before. So I know that that's a possible you know, technique. So I kept I was very curious and I was I think I was about 16 and I was visiting in New York and I saw my best girlfriend from kindergarten and I said let's do a case on your mother and her mother was alive and everything and she wasn't like sick or any diseases but when I went and scanned her body I discovered I can't remember it was either a broken arm or a broken leg I can't remember the detail and I told her and she said oh no my mother never you know broke her leg and she went back and told the mother about the case I did and told her about the broken leg or arm, whichever it was. And she said, oh, yes, that happened when I was a young girl, way before I was ever married. So it wasn't even a story that she would think to tell them as they're growing up. And that was when I learned in that moment that this was not a mind reading experience. And in fact, I was doing a remote viewing with Russell recently and I have pictures of these if we want to show any of them later, but it was a remote viewing of a ceramic large eyeball. And then it had wings that came out that were all feathered. But as people who know Russell very well know that he's legally blind. So his eyesight, he can see, but he has, uh, you know, he has special glasses and he's, you know, he can read on his computer and all these things, but he's never been able to get a driver's license and, so when I mentioned it to him, he hadn't seen, I got marked incorrect. And then when he looked at it closer, he realized he couldn't see the detail that it really was all feathers and wings. So these kind of things happen, you know, as you're learning and working together. And I find anytime I do remote viewing with Russell, he has such a special way about his being what they call the monitor. And I can always come up with incredible results when I work with them. So I do think there's something, even though I'm not reading the person's mind, there's something that's happening between Russell and I when we are doing our remote viewing. There's some sort of a connection that takes place. Have you had any mediumship experiences as well? Well, <laughs> I never, th even though the title of my upcoming book that hopefully I'll get done this year, is a small medium at large. I, in fact, and even a lot of these titles and things, I've had to actually look back and realize that, oh, I am a medium or, oh, I am a shaman. No wonder they turned me into a shaman. You know, so it's sort of like a learning process for me. In the mediumship, what I do sometimes with people when they come to my house, and I don't, have a shingle out. I don't do this publicly. This is only like family or friends that, you know, I have a busy enough life with all these other things. But if somebody passes away and a person is feeling like they didn't have closure or they don't feel like they, they, they want something else more to connect, or they just want to feel some lifted up energy from the experience of the loss, if they come to me, I'll do my little shamanic blessing on them or ceremony or whatever you want to give the name to this. And in that experience, I'll hear information coming from that 
deceased person because I don't know the deceased person in some of these cases. And I'll share that with the person that's sitting there and they will be so grateful that they could tell that somehow my description of something about that person makes them feel comforted that they know I've connected to them. And they're just silly things like I had a friend that lost his partner of 35 or 40 years, a very long relationship. And I'd only met him once, the person who passed away. And I didn't know anything intimately about him. But as I'm doing the little ceremony, I keep smelling cologne. And I'm like, oh, I'm not a cologne person. I don't wear, I don't like, you know, I don't like scented candles or smells or any of this. And I say to the person, I don't know what it is about your, your partner, but all I can smell is cologne everywhere. And later the person tells me how that was his most prized thing was his closet of cologne. And it was like from Florida, you know, the whole entire closet, top to bottom. But he said, there's enough cologne in there that costs so much money from places all over the world that you could buy a house with this amount of cologne. <laughs> so there's silly little things like that. They're not like, oh, deep, deep emotional, th you know, but there's something that happens in that that I would call mediumship. It's something about connecting to the spirit or the consciousness of the deceased person while the, the, the person who cares about them is sitting there and something happens during that. And they always leave looking lighter and happier than when they first came in. I, I had another one that came to me who I didn't know him well, but I knew his father very well who had passed away. His family sent him to me and he was not somebody that has anything to do with this kind of world at all. And the family just said, just go see Gail, just go see Gail. And when we connected and I felt the connection and presence of his deceased father, we had just a beautiful emotional bonding and love sharing. And I heard different words from the father to say to the son and I just expressed them. And then the person seemed to know what it means. And I think that we call that mediumship, but I'm not sure. <laughs> so that would be one particular thing. And then if we think of mediumship as, I was in a group with Stanley Krippner where we were doing table tipping. And with table tipping, it's something that's been done since, I don't know, 1870 or something like this. And there's a lot of, you know, fraudulent and fake ways of doing this. But I can tell you and your listeners that when we would go to this man's living room and five of us would sit around a table, there was nothing fraudulent going on at all. And I even went there completely skeptical, even though I've seen videos, you know, until I experience it, I can't sit there and say, oh, yeah, this is real. I can say maybe it's real, but I don't know until I've done it. And I'm not a scientist or a skeptical type, but I feel like I have to have the experience. I'm, I'm, I'm a person that it's my experiences that all my stories come from. They're not out of books. So we would have these unbelievable things happen with this table tipping. Now, what is going on? I can't tell you. I can just tell you, I saw this table going around the room. I saw this table going around the room. It wouldn't just shake. It literally would move. And shake. It was, well, there wasn't enough room for it to go far because it was hitting Stanley in the stomach and, you know, people were sitting in chairs and it was, you know, like going toward the people. 
but it didn't occur until we had met the first one or two times that we met, there was like not that much happening. But as we created a bond together as a group of like five people and repeatedly met to do this, the experiences got stronger and more intense. And there were things that would happen in the room. Now, we're trying to do table raising, but at the same time, in a sealed room with all the windows closed, breezes would be coming through. Temperatures would change. It would get very hot. It would get very cold. And there was nothing, you know, nobody was putting heaters on or air conditioners. I can't exactly explain this, but this is what I was experiencing there. And as we got closer and closer together as a little group, in the beginning, it would take maybe a half hour before there would be table action. As we got together more and more, it would be within the first 10 minutes. We'd sit there with our hands on the table and we learned through the experience of the table kind of teaching us, like if we sat there seriously, like we did in the beginning with all our hands touching each other and kind of in a quiet silence and this sort of thing, nothing happened. When we went to a place of joy where we all talked about things and we created laughter and they played like upbeat reggae music in the background, not loud, but you know, like just a nice volume. This is when activity would start. It wouldn't start when we were sitting in the dark, quiet, like I would imagine, like that's what I imagine. Oh, if we sat still and quiet, then we would hear these things. It really happened when we were alive and, you know, like in a very positive space. And interesting things occurred during that time. And the table, I, I had some video, I, I never put it up because you can't see the full situation. So any skeptic could say, well, there might be somebody on the other side doing something. But I'm telling you, I saw this table do this activity and I saw this and there's this feeling of elated joy after the table does the rocking or, you know, lifting up a few inches, you get like very excited and it's like you're getting an adrenaline or coffee rush or something. And we each would have different experiences with deceased people during those times where different spirits would just sort of enter in. And I don't know if they were the ones responsible for raising the table or is there speaking to us through the table? I don't know. But myself, I was describing to a T, one of the other people had lost a young man to suicide who was only in his 20s. And while we're doing the thing, all of a sudden he presented himself. And I, it's like you visually see this person, describe it, and the person that's with us at the table saying, yes, that's him. Yes, he is that personality. Yes, he does do these things. And then I experienced it with them when I mentioned a dear friend of ours who had passed, who was helping me with the table tipping and saying, this is a wonderful thing you and Stanley are doing, uh, my dear friend, Jean Millay. And she had said to me, you contact the spirits when you do that. And I didn't know what you do for table tipping because where's the, where's the guidebook? I don't know. <laughs> and she had passed away before we got to speak with her about the next table tipping and what went on. And when she passed away, she had a very rare and unusual passing. And none of the people in the room besides Stanley even knew her name or who she was. 
So it's not like they had a history of Jean Millet or they've read her books or knew what kind of person she was. When all of a sudden she presented herself, not like a physical, it's not like that. It's, I don't see like if you watch a show on TV where you see like a shape of a person and it's standing there in front of you and it's sort of see-through or cloud-like. When I'm saying I'm seeing something, I'm seeing it in my third eye or somewhere in inside my mind. It, the vision, that's where the vision is. I don't actually see it floating out there in front of me where I could say, oh, there. But we would have descriptions and also I would feel, my things are usually auditory and my body feels something about what's going on. I'm not like a visual person who sees an actual dead person standing in front of them. So the young man, uh, I had described different things about the young man and they were exactly who this, this person was. And then it was the other way around where we had Jean Millay. Now, Jean Millay was a very dear friend of Stanley Krippner's and myself. And she and I had been talking about the table tipping and she was telling me how it's spirits speaking through the table. That was her, you know, information. And she passed away while we were doing table tipping sessions. So I thought when I went to the next session, since she had passed away and she was involved with this on the telephone by me sharing the stories, I would bring her to the session. So I mentioned her name and the other three people did not know her or anything about her and had never met her. Only Stanley and I knew her. And the three other people, they came up with the exact information. One of the women said, all I keep thinking is things about light and how light moves and things light going this way, light going that way. And here's a chart of something Jean had put together about light and how light travels or different things about light. It was just that the point being that it was something she felt so much information about that she made charts on it. So when they were saying all these things about light, I'm thinking, wow, they're really picking up on Jane here. But it was the last thing that they said that totally confirmed to me that you cannot tell me Jean wasn't there at that moment in spirit or consciousness. I'm not exactly sure what happens here, but she died in a way that the only other person I know who's done this was Aldous Huxley. And uh, I've heard people talk about it, but I've never heard of anyone who actually did this. But she wanted to pass while doing acid at the same time. And so acid had been ground up and put into her feeding tube so that she would have this experience. Well, no one in that room, even Stanley, didn't know about this. And I had only recently known about this information because her daughter had told me. And the two women, one of the women said, the other medium, in fact, I feel like I'm tripping on acid. I was getting kind of scared because she was really getting very, seemed to be getting very high there in front of us. And when she finished, she said, the thing is, I have never taken acid in my life. So it wasn't even a connection of something she could say, oh yeah, I'm experiencing acid. I've had this before. And when it was over, I had said to her the story I just told you, that Jean was actually on LSD while she was passing. And so I can't describe a more accurate mediumship for a woman to be able to pick up while we're doing table tipping that kind of an experience from someone who's never even done acid in her life. 
where would she get that kind of information? She didn't know this gene. She didn't know anything about what had happened. Even Stanley didn't know. So nobody, she couldn't be, where did this come from? And she's all of a sudden going, oh, I feel like I'm on LSD, you know? <laughs> so those were just the mediumship stories. I had a table tipping experience once. So hearing a verification of one kind of means a lot because it was with someone I cared about a lot too. You have two Dean Radin stories about electronics. One happened in the beginning when I was doing those trials I told you about uh, back at Interval Research in Palo Alto. And it was, we would do, Russell and I would do a remote viewing in the morning, then we'd go have lunch, and then we'd do a remote viewing in the afternoon. So we would do two remote viewings, and I had a uh, a, a very young baby at the time that was, you know, she was maybe two years old, I think. And so I was pretty tired from just being a mother and all. And it was also a long drive from Sebastopol to Palo Alto. And sometime I'd spend the night in Palo Alto in another house we had there. Well, the weirdest thing would happen when we would sit down to do the remote viewings when I was really, really tired and really didn't feel like I could do a good remote viewing that day because I was so tired, but I had our schedule. We'd meet once a week and I wasn't going to miss the day. Weird things would happen in the front of the computer where I would crash the system. And the guy that was the IT guy in the basement would come running up and saying, what is going on up here? I've never had this happen. What is she doing? <laughs> so this happened a couple of times and I realized it was when I was really, really tired I was doing something that was making the equipment crash so that I actually couldn't do the remote viewing at that moment. And the only reason we knew is, and this was a huge place. So they had, you know, bad, you know, huge rooms of computer equipment that this man was taking care of for all these different scientists that were working there. So that was one that happened in our early stages of remote viewing. But then many years later, maybe 15 years later or so, Dean had been the senior scientist for many years then at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and he was doing something called the double slit experiment. And in this experiment, he had this $20,000 piece of equipment that has photons going through it. So that's an actual stream of light. I'm not good at scientific explanations, but this machine was doing something with photons and he was looking for people to mentally interrupt the photons and you were hooked up to you know, machines for your brain and things to see what was going on, if you could interfere and stop this. And then it would show on the computer that the photon had been interfered with. Well, when he asked me to do the experiment, it had been some months after the passing of my father, maybe, maybe, maybe it was close to a year, and I was still so distraught about losing this man I loved so dearly. And I didn't think I could do anything psychic again because I was so drained. And my husband said, just go, just go. You'll, you, you, don't worry about it. You know you're going to do what he needs. And I was like, oh, no, I can't do anything ever again. I'm just done, you know. <laughs> and I get in and Dean hooks me up and when we do the experiment the first time, I didn't really understand what I was supposed to do. I didn't understand what a photon machine was or whatever. So I said, let, let me do it a second time because I didn't really get the information about what I should do here. 
So when he locks me in the Faraday cage, and if your listeners don't know, a Faraday cage is an electromagnetically shielded room that's been used by scientists for many years to show that no other electronic interferences or things are getting in that room. And while I'm doing this thing, he locks me in the room, all of a sudden I look at it and I have all this anger and I just start yelling at the, at the device and I say, you know what? I'm just going to blow the whole fucking thing up. <laughs> the next thing I know, the second after that saying that out loud in the Faraday cage, all the electricity goes out in the room. And if you've ever been in a Faraday cage, you're in pitch black darkness. And there's a rap at the door and he comes to the door and I say, oh, I'm so sorry, Dean. I yelled at the device and I hope I didn't damage or break it. And he's in there put, putting wires and moving the little wires around. And he said, well, actually, there's no electricity in the entire ION's campus. Everything went out, he said. And I've checked. There is no weather. There's no electrical interferences. He said, this is what we call an anomaly. And he said that I had taken electricity out in a very large area. All the electricity went out right when you started screaming, you're going to blow it all out. (laughs) Everything came back on, but of course, none of the data got recorded from my brain to the computer. So you can't have any scientific proof of what happened because it stopped everything. And so... As he said, we can only call this an anomaly. It's not necessarily a repeatable experience. And it was not in my mind that I was going to take electricity out. All in my mind was that I was just going to blow this thing up. (laughs) Don't ruin my computer. I never did. That that was the only one that was ever intentional. They've never been intentional. Approximately 185,000 murder cases went unsolved from 1980 to 2019. On average, 66% of homicides are solved each year. So what about the other 34%? Alarmingly, the number of murder cases that went unsolved by police hit a new high in 2020, resulting in only 50% of cases being solved, leaving far too many families with no answers, no resolution, no closure. That's why we investigate and report on unsolved cases, to spread the word in hopes of helping families who are searching for answers. We don't sleep, we're just actively looking for her. These girls were alive, they were living, breathing people, they weren't a picture in the media. There was a a body found in a truck recently. None of us know anything about that body, Who, who was it, what happened. What could have happened? Who could have been involved? There's no answer. And and it's just horrible. A true crime series investigating mysterious unsolved cases. Real people, real stories, real crimes. Tune into Speaking of Crime with your hosts, Gia and John. Available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. We are at Speaking of Crime on Instagram and Facebook and at Crime Speaking on Twitter. Can I ask all of you listening a favor? Would you mind rating and reviewing my book, WTF Just Happened? 
a sciencey skeptic explores grief, healing, and evidence of an afterlife on Amazon. Authors depend so much on ratings. They are crucial to the algorithm and Amazon making sure this book is seen. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you. So it sounds like you did some amazing experiments with Dr. Dean Radin. Are there any others psychic related that you want to share? I know you shared some remote viewing, but is there, are there others you did with Dr. Dean Radin where you didn't blow out the electricity? Oh yeah. Well, that was only, you know, I don't think they'd have me back if I was blowing things up all the time. (laughs) But there was a a beautiful one because it became a long-term friendship and I ended up being the medical power of attorney for this woman when she was very ill and, and, and passing. So uh, her name was Dr. Ruth Inga Hines, and she was the founder of the Shamanism Conference on Shamanism and Alternative Modes of Healing. And I didn't know anything about her or her conference, and I didn't have a whole big involvement in shamans until this woman came into my life. In fact, she's the one who had me take care of all the Mongolian shamans, which when they came and that opened up a whole world of my involvement with the Mongolian people that's been going on since 2006. So it's a long-term involvement. She was coming to IONS and I was handling registration or something for some conference we were having. And I worked volunteer and I was also paid to work and I was working in the research department there at IONS. So I was at the desk where Dean's office was and I get this phone call that this woman would love to come to the conference, but she needs a ride from Berkeley. So I say, oh, I'm happy to help you. I'll drive to Berkeley and pick you up. I pick her up. I bring her up to the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and she's going to participate in an experiment. And the experiment is that she has to sit in the Faraday cage while the other person is in another building in another room in front of a computer and you're given an object of the person. So I didn't know anything about this woman except giving her a ride, and I'm holding her rings in my hand. And she would see a vision of a a picture of me on the uh, computer in her Faraday cage, and I would see one of her, and they would turn it on and off when we were doing this communication. And sure enough, I came up with these unusual things where was, I didn't know her, and I, I said, I feel like I'm in Austria, like that. Like this woman is, you know, something to do with Austria and there's all these things about Austria. And then I say in the thing, why doesn't she smile? I'm trying to get her to smile. So I'm sending her this psychic message of you should smile. You should smile. At the end of the experiment, she comes to tell me that she had just spent the day before with Father Tiso who was a priest from Austria, who she had just spent all this time with the day before. So that's why Austria was in her space or in the feelings I was picking up in her rings. But she said, but when you tried to get me to smile, <laughs> she said, I, you could see on it, like she was just trying to, the little lips were kind of trying to, you know, but she was a stern German tough woman and smiling was just not part of her way. So the woman wasn't in the room with you when you said the smile, or this was someone who'd passed away. Who said, no, this was your... No, no, she was in the Faraday cage. And then after we say everything, then we meet afterwards and tell you whether the things you said were accurate or not. Got it. 
And because we had such a deep connection that way, and she kept saying to me, you were getting ahead of me before I would have the thought or the thing you was, you were, you were, you were getting ahead of me. It was like pissing her off. <laughs> and she said, and that's when our friendship began. She invited me to come to her conference as her guest and she, she changed my life. So I would say that was a very important experiment that they were doing about whether you could hold an object and get information from the object that really taught me that that's absolutely possible. That's a beautiful story. I love that. Oh, thank you. I loved her. She was an amazing woman. I want to hear a bit about your shamanism. I know that's a big part of what you do. I'm sorry, where do you travel with it? You mentioned somewhere. I'll give you it all from the beginning. I met Ingo Swan when Russell Targ took me, took me to his house to meet him in New York in the Bowery. And uh, we had a little bit of a rough beginning there when he was, didn't know he was, that was, he was bringing a guest. And then uh, after I was there for about a half hour, then we started to talk and interact. By the time we left, we had become friends. And Ingo mentioned to me as I was leaving, and I thought it was the strangest thing, but now I realize he was precognitively telling me the future. He said, you know what your problem is? He said, is, he says, you're a shaman. He said, but you don't know how to act like a shaman. He said, this is what you know, you know, and I left there thinking what a strange thing. So who knew that shamanism was going to all of a sudden become a whole big part of my life after that. But it was because of my assisting at the shamanism conference with Dr. Ruth Inga Hines that I got exposed to shamans from all over the world. They would come for this conference for three days and she did this for about 30 years. So this was, you know, everyone knew of it. It was always the same time. Stanley Krippner hardly missed one in the 30 years. And she would bring shamans from Laos, from Brazil, from South America, Central America, Native American shamans. And in, in one three days, you would be able to see shamanism ceremonies by so many different cultures. Where could you experience that? And so I'd end up inviting them to come to my house afterwards and do smaller little intimate things here with small groups of people. And I started to get to know all these different shamans. And one day I come in to help her for the thing and she tells me there's six shaman, six, six Mongolians upstairs, she said, and their translator hasn't arrived. Go up there and settle them in, show them where to put their stuff, where the food is, and make sure that they're ready for their presentation at 7 p.m. And I look at her and I say, I don't speak Mongolian. <laughs> How am I going to do this? And with her German accent, she said, just go do what I said and you'll do it, you know? So with her intensity, and you never said no to her, this was a tough lady, I go up and I meet these people, and that was 2005 or six. I've never come apart from the relationships I created that day in that room. And I had funny experiences with them. I had to tell the shaman, his name was Zorik Batar, and he's no longer with us now, but I had to explain to him that, you know, he needed to be down there and do his presentation. We needed to unload his suitcase. And when we opened up his suitcase, there were no clothes in it. There were only turtle heads and dead animals and, you know, feathers everywhere. And it was a quite a collection of stuff that he had going on in this suitcase. And we just did charades and what I consider telepathic communication that I'm very good at. 
and we communicated telepathically. That's really the only way I can tell you that we were able to do all this because I could not speak a word of Mongolian. And this started me a whole life of meeting with Mongolian people and having them come to my home. And he invited me to come to the 800 year celebration of the Mongolian empire. And so I went along to Mongolia entrusting myself with these shaman people that I was going to stay with. And I had three incredible weeks of touring and driving, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles all around Mongolia and going to sacred places and doing ceremonies and meeting other shamans. And I in turn invite them all always to come to my home. So I returned for a second visit some years later and I brought my family this time, my husband and two of my three children. And we had some amazing time in there. And there was this woman that was part of the conference there. We, I spoke at two conferences in Mongolia and she was a very powerful shaman. And it turned out she was coming to the United States two months after I met her in Mongolia. So she stayed at my house for a week here. We never have translators, but we all get along well and we all communicate. And she was leaving to go off to Chicago where there's a large group of Mongolians who live there. And she was going there to do healing and work with her, her people before she would go back to Mongolia. All of a sudden she's back at my door a week later and says, I couldn't go to Chicago. I saw too many spirits around you. I have to initiate you as a Buryat Mongolian shaman. So it was not something that I asked for, except according to Ingo Swan, He'd already told me ahead that this was my path. And I looked around at all the objects I had been given by these different shamans that I'd met at the conference or who had come to my house. So I had a collection of all these things for the initiation into shamanism. So we did a six day without translator preparation for a very intense seven or eight hour shamanic initiation. It was very intense. It was very powerful. I felt like, I guess, when a person gets a degree or you go through massage school or whatever the type of thing is that you need your title, I felt like when I finished that she had given me something that was really missing. And I felt like I'd finally gotten my, my little title of, you know, of being a shaman. And it's actually hard for me to say that because I'm more, I don't know, I'm not, I don't know exactly how to say that, but I'm not, it's not like I'm running around saying to people, oh, I'm a shaman, la la la, you know, that's not how it is for me. It's more like, oh, wow, I recently realized that I had been doing shamanic work way back 17, 18 years ago. And I didn't realize the things that I were doing because I didn't have a name for them, but I was exercising negative energies or entities or things out of buildings, out of people. But I was doing it before actually being given the tools and learning different things that I could use to do that kind of work. So I now publicly on your show, I'm acknowledging that yes, it was correct for me to be picked to be into shamanism. And yes, it is one of my abilities or connection or whatever that might, the right word would be for that. And that's how it began. And that was 2011. So it's been, let's see, I have my book right here. 
It's been it was September twenty second, two thousand eleven. So it's almost it's almost twelve years ago. And I'll show that photo. She just just so everyone listening knows, Gail just showed a beautiful book, which I'll put photos of and links to the little video in the show notes. So here is during the shamanism initiation. This is me in an altered state of mind because I had to chant and drum and play the jaw harp in 95 degree weather, jumping up and down for hours. And as my children looked on and my son said, Ma, I know you had to be in an altered state because you can't take heat. And it was 100 degrees out and you're wearing animal skins, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. Do you remember it? Like when you're in an altered state, do you have any memory of it? I am so grateful that one of my shamanism conference friends wrote every single thing down. Because, no, I would not be able to tell you that. I couldn't. And it's the place like we talk about in remote viewing. There was no time in that place. So while that experience was happening, it could have been a half hour, it could have been six hours. I wouldn't have known the difference and I couldn't tell you where I was or what exactly was happening in that, just that I can confirm that I was in an altered state. So I'm so grateful that she did this, uh, Linda Braga. And so as I'm finishing up the end of my book, I'm writing about my shamanic initiation. I can tell everything that happened before, the setting up of the things, the moment when Zagda asked me for something in her mind without using words, and I appeared with a grass from Siberia that someone had given me years before, and all she could say was, Gail, 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 because in her mind she thought that, and that's what she wanted. And when she had a group of filmmakers come up to interview me and sit with her and do all of this for a Mongolian film, I got to find out then through the translator of the filmmaking that she said when she would think something, I would become in her head and she would see me inside her head and she would tell me what to do. <laughs> and then I would produce whatever it was. And there's no mind reading in that with words. There's something, I, I think that's something interesting to study if any scientist ever had the money to try and study something like that which is I telepathically communicate with people in other cultures and we don't speak the same language. So something, and it's not just in Mongolian, I've done it in other cultures also. How does that happen? I, I don't know, but that does happen. And does that only happen with other shamans? I mean, people who have your type of abilities, just an average person like me, if we didn't speak the same language, you probably couldn't communicate telepathically with me, for example. Am I correct? I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. I really don't know. I only know my experience. And so I don't know what would happen for another person. I wanted to show you one other shaman who came years later and she, her name is Handa. And she's just was the sweetest, most beautiful shaman woman. She wasn't the tough kind. She was more of the of a you know compassionate, more kind, a different type. And this is her and I in Sonoma State University here. And I would be the person that would present them before they would give their ceremony or do something like this. And I want to mention that all the clothing that I'm wearing in this particular picture 
and all the things that are on me, those are all things that had been given to me. So all my shamanic tools and items, 90% were gifts to me that all became part of my, my tools or my, my clothing or my gear. <laughs> Beautiful photos. And that will also be in the show notes, everyone on the website. I once heard you say that you think all of us can have some of these abilities in some way. I think it's just something that we've lost connection with. Because when you go into, you know, like I've spent a lot of time in the mountains of Mexico with the Huichol Indians in a very remote area where at the time when I went there in the early 80s, I was the third person that had ever been there. And I think maybe the, I was the first white woman that had been involved in this remote area, 10,000 feet elevation. They all communicate telepathically there. And that's, so that's not like a strange thing to them. So I would always be there and think, how did they know to meet us in the middle of a mountain with a burrow out of nowhere? And there has to be a community. There's no telephones, no cell phones there. How are they getting to know this? Well, people are receiving information and they're, they don't think of it as unusual. What would be an example of something they would know? You arriving there? Yes, right. Just all of a sudden being there in the middle of nowhere. How did they know how to be there in the middle of nowhere? And there's no you know, particular path or road or this kind of thing. I think that in other cultures, they are still communicating more telepathically. And, and probably in places like the Amazon, you know, in, in places that are remote, that haven't been westernized, I, I think that that still goes on. What I think happens in our culture, I'll just speak about here, is that people lose touch with this. I think when you're born, you're a child, you're a mother, you're having telepathic communications. They will always tell you that. A mother will tell you, I knew my son needed me at that moment, or I felt they got hurt. It's that people lose sight of this ability in them as they get older because they're taught in, in religion or they're taught in school to ignore those things. And that's where they then disconnect. And I think when we connect to the fact that we're all one as a planet, as a people, as a you know, we what happens to somebody in some remote place is somewhere happening to us at the same time on a deep level. So I think that we've had a disconnect where we've grown up thinking families are supposed to live far apart instead of living close together. There's a lot of things, technology, a lot of things that have kept us from reconnecting to that place in ourselves. I had done some work for Dean when I would answer, he called me Dr. Gale back then, I would answer people who would be having psychic experiences later in life and it would scare them. And the reason it would scare them was because they disconnected from that fact when this is really a normal thing. It's not, I'm not any specialer, I'm not anything different than you or any other person. It's just that I maybe have done more of it because I've never shut it off. I don't have, like Dean said, I don't have any filters. So information just comes to me and I don't have a thing that says, oh, you shouldn't believe that. Oh no, don't think that. Don't trust your gut. Your body, your gut was often referred to as your second brain. It's the other place that's getting information and 
it's trying to tell you. But the more that you silence it, it's harder to hear. The more that you accept it in, the louder the voice becomes. Even in my own self, I find that if I disconnect from that place, I become like, I'm not balanced. I need to always be in touch with that part of myself because it gives me guidance and it helps me from being in a car accident. It does things that are very, it makes me be at a place at a time that I should be there in that moment. When I don't listen to those voices, then I find I have obstacles. People would write in and I would answer them and I would always find that they had experiences, but somebody told them as a child, oh, no, 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 don't, don't, don't look at that or don't do this. And that's where they turn it off. So if we start to talk and we start to say, well, did you ever have a feeling after somebody died, like they were in your room with you or they were in the doorway or they were at the edge of your bed or did you ever have a feeling? And when you start to talk about it, if people, you know, hear what you're saying and reconnect to that moment, you can find everybody has had in fact, I think Dean was doing something he had spoke to me about recently where they were trying to find people who'd never had a psychic experience. And it was very hard to find that. I believe we're all psychic, if you want to use, I never even liked that word. We're all intuitive. We're all, we're all connected as one. And I think that by the beginning way to start is just to listen to your inner voice and that inner voice will become stronger and you'll reconnect to those places. And I, you know, I, I think it's a wonderful thing when uh, some parents do that with their children as they're growing up to not turn that off and to let them have those experiences and let them say, if they have a feeling like uh, they, they, they have an object and they're like, I have to have this. It's what, and it turns out it's something of their grandma or they, they get connected to things. So I think one of the good things is if people would listen to their children more, their children also have very good deep insights at young ages because they haven't been taught to filter and put things in front of them. I also found that people like myself who've had, you know, traumatic experiences as a child, that that's one of the things that helped them get through the trauma. And I find that some of the people whose abilities are sharper or they're using them a lot, often when I will ask them, many of them will not say, oh, I had the perfect childhood. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Do you think it's our discarnate deceased loved ones are working harder to protect those of us who are having hard times? Personally, I feel like that's how I got through. I think that there was other, some people call them angels, some people call them guides. I don't, I don't like state that anything is with a specific name. My guides helped me. I don't have a word for them, but I know that, I guess we could use the word guides, but there was something protecting me or I wouldn't be here today. And it was something of an invisible nature. What do you think? Do you think, though, that there is actually an afterlife? And if so, why? And that our loved ones who've passed are still around us. What would you say to someone who's has a hard time thinking that could be the case and maybe they're in deep grief? I definitely don't think your body dies and that's the end of everything. What actually happens, I'm not sure. But the thing that I feel the most sure about is that consciousness lives on. 
in a form of energy in the, what I call the invisible. I don't think I could have the experiences I've had or the information that comes with people who have been deceased or the experiences I have in, you know, I've had experiences sometimes where someone dies. I don't know that they died, but I feel them pass through my body all of a sudden and I almost pass out. So I know that I'm connected in an invisible way during death with people. And what happens afterwards, I'm just not sure if we jump into another body and we become somebody's sister or we're back in the family again or we become a dog. I don't, I don't have that information. If I was a Buddhist and you read all the different things in Buddhism, you would say, yes, well, the Karmapa picked out the bowl or whoever has to pick out the bowl of that was there in the reincarnate. And they show all these different things showing that that entity, that person knew the, the entity of the deceased person and that's how they're connected to them. So I know of that and that may be true, but I don't know. I don't know for a hundred percent sure if it's just like that, but I don't believe that just the body dies and nothing else you know, and I believe there's also something about the breath. When I was in Mongolia, I held a sheep in my lap while the sheep was being killed. And it's the most humane killing I'd ever seen of an animal. They just take a little pen knife, cut open and reach into the aorta, into the heart of the, of the, of the sheep, pinch it. And the sheep dies in no stress or any kind of fear. And when I held the head in my lap, I saw the the breath, the last breath that the sheep took. It was like something was leaving in that breath. And I think some scientists, or I'm not sure of the exact information, where there's some sort of a weight to that part. So it seems that there's something about consciousness and energy that lives on. But I don't know if we jump into another body right away or if we hang out in these different like they call it the Bardos or these different, different places. I'm not exactly sure about the answer to that. Just that I'm sure, you know, I plan to come back and haunt my children. So I, <laughs> I'm not sure how, you know, or, you know, will I be able to do that? And I always tell them, I said, don't worry. I said, I'll be back. <laughs> Which I'm sure they want. So I definitely want, I love when my dad does little signs and visits and I certainly hope one day way down the future, my mom better do it and I'll do it to my kids one day. So yeah. It, yes. And I, and like for me, my dad comes to me in a red tailed hawk and I can call and say, I need to see you, dad. I need to just feel like you're here. And this hawk will come out of nowhere, whether it's a communication and a message is sent whether he's in the, his spirit is in the bird, I can't answer that. I have no idea. I just know that I've been able to make connection when I felt that need. And I've often told people when they've lost a loved one to keep their dreams and their eyes open because they may be trying to send you a message or connect to you through a, a goose or a, a duck or, or, you know, even a butterfly. And that not to let people make fun of you when you say, when I see that butterfly, I know that's my mom being there to support me. That, and I feel that that's, that's a true thing to be able to say. Do you have any other great stories to share before we end? Okay, so this last story I'm going to share 
is one that I just did this last year in 2022 when Russell Targ and I were doing a dozen uh, remote viewings that we were rating and photographing, etc. And every week he would call me up on the phone because it was COVID and he'd say, I have an object on my desk. Gail, can you tell me what it is? And they would be unusual things like this. This is a, a cosahedron. And I would draw, I drew a little bar just like this. And I said, everything on it is the same side. Everything is the same, you know, measurement. And we would write these things and then he'd send me the object. So I'd have the object that was really sweet. And when we got to the end of the 12, he said, I've done an object with you every time. And some of the times I would remote view the other things on his desk. And it was only supposed to be the one object, but I was seeing all these other things. He said, this one, he said, is a photograph. It's not an object. And I would like if you could see if you could remote view this photograph. So when we went to do the, the photograph, I said, I could describe the photograph. And the first thing I said was, there's a lot of vegetation. And he said, well, let me stop you right there. I took all the vegetation out of the photo. <laughs> So that right then and there was another one where I, the first thing I came on with was the thing that was removed. So he said, okay, let's start again. So I appreciated being told that I had really picked that information out of the photo he was looking at. And then I said, oh, everything is black and white. There's no color. And the first thing I came on with was a rocket ship. And then I said, propulsion. And he said, I have to stop you for a minute, Gail. I've never heard you say the word propulsion in the 20 years I've known you. So this is not one of my particular words. And then I say, there's an energy. And I draw this picture of something twirling around like this. So I'm going to hold up the picture of what this was to show you and your audience. It's a photograph of an unidentified flying object with a Navy jet chasing after it. And he said to me, I was given this photo, I shared this photo with Jacques Vallée, who is a UFO scientist, or he's respected in the community about this. And he said, and I was told that it couldn't be remote viewed because it's an inter interdimensional or multidimensional object. He said, now I'm going to call him up and let him know that you remote viewed it perfectly <laughs> and that it was possible to do. And this is... I could kind of show you the twirly things. It's a pencil drawing, so it's hard, hard, to, hard to see. But this is the drawing. And as you can see, there was the, the flying saucer, which I called a rocket ship. So I just thought I would end on that note, since it was something that I did just only, you know, six months ago. It's not from 20 years ago. And also the fact that it was a photograph that was not what we were doing. We were doing objects. And so it doesn't matter if he says to me, okay, can we just do this all of a sudden? And we just do it. And I believe it's because he's an amazing monitor and because we have a wonderful connection that we're able to really do really wonderful work together. But he's able to teach remote viewing to people who have never done it in places all over the world where they don't even speak the language he has taught people remote viewing and they are able to do successful remote viewing right there and then because he's a fabulous teacher.
So I think that would be my last story. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. In this week's question, Sydney T wants to know, Hey, Liz, do you ever get any amazing signs from your dad or for any of your loved ones? Hey, Sydney, thanks for asking. Yeah, I actually have gotten some really like kind of mind blowing what is going on signs. Even early on when I didn't believe any of this could be true, I did have to kind of consider a few of them. And since then, I've gotten more and more. I mentioned a couple amazing ones in my book. I discuss another one that happened a little later in episodes one and two with Joe Peretta. So I'll tell you one of these ones here. So this one is in my book, but early on, I was walking through Central Park and I'm a New Yorker. I don't walk slow. I don't know why I went into almost this meditative, dreamy state. And I started walking really slowly and kind of moseying, which, as I said, I don't do. And I was passing this little boat pond in New York, in Central Park, and they it's not big enough that it could ever have real boats, but they now and then you'll see a model toy boat in it. And there was this one little boat, and I don't know why I've passed this boat pond a million times. I grew up in the city. I used to play by the boat pond when I was little. And I see this boat, and I just kind of daydreamily mosey over to it, and I look. And this is probably the one time in my life. I don't know, maybe when I was three or four playing there, but probably only time in my life since I was like six years old that I went and stopped and looked at one of the little toy boats in it or model boats. And they almost never even have model boats in it anymore. But I went and looked and it had my dad's name on it. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, (laughs) open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. can our listeners find you and follow you learn more about you know when your book finally publishes which i'll make sure to let everyone know about well i would love if they wanted to go to my website 
a small medium at large dot co and they can see shows I've been on and I think my YouTube shows, but if they want to just go to YouTube, I've been doing, uh, I have 54 episodes now and there are interviews with Dean and Russell and Steven Schwartz and Sally Rhinefeather and interesting scientists. And there's also ones with people some may have never heard of who have amazing stories to share about their life. And uh, that would be a small, medium, at large podcast with Gail Heisen. They should be able to find it. It's on Spotify. And my my son and daughter post everything for me. I'm not a tech person. <laughs> and if they ever wanted to read anything before my book comes out, I have 10 really fun stories. I have a spoon and fork bending story, and they're all on that site called Medium where people publish their, you know, few pages and they're only like five or seven minute papers, but there's some interesting ones there. Uh, and the one about mind dynamics that we just spoke about, if they go there, they can see the actual cards and things we were given. I published in it all the different things and the people, they want to know the little of that history, they can find it on the site medium. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. It was really a, a pleasure meeting you, and I'm looking forward to having you on my podcast so we can do WTF. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to WTFJustHappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened, A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and evidence of an afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at wtf just happened.net and remember you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened